WSLstore.com is powered by Shopify. We love the analytics we can check on the go. A lot of us are addicted to checking the Shopify app on our phones. We also love the automations and marketing integrations with our social and YouTube channels. It has incredible features to help us manage our global audience, including international taxation support and great shipping optionality. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek skis, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lineup, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lineup now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lineup. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lineup with Dave Prodan. I'm Dave Prodan, and as we discussed last week, we have said goodbye to producer extraordinaire Ryan Fawcett as he prepares for his next grand adventure. And we've welcomed in a uh, break room regular, Hendo Bayer, to step in and fill the producing shoes. In the transition, we need a week to get organized. So for today, we have a replay of one of both Ryan and Hendo's uh, favorite episodes with Channel Islands' Britt Merrick. Conversation took place in June of 2020, and Britt was an incredible guest. I hope you enjoy a re-listen to this or a listen if uh, you didn't do so the first time around. We will return next week with new episodes, but for now, please enjoy the lineups conversation with Carpinteria's Britt Merrick. The good old clap, take one. That's right. <laughs> How many of you knew what you wanted to be when you were seven years old? I did, I wanted to be a world champion. Hey, is there honesty involved in this podcast? Can we be honest? You can shut your fucking lips. And then I'll just say, put them up once, let's go. He's like, you look too pretty on the wave. Get ugly. We can talk about DMT if you want. Let's talk to your boxes. All right, Channel Islands, Britt Merrick joining the lineup at Low Tide. Thank you for, for coming on today, Britt. Um, you know, how are you doing? Where are you today? And who are you with? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm doing super well. Uh, I'm in Carpinteria, which is my home. I was born and raised here in Carpinteria. For those that don't know, it's between Santa Barbara and Ventura. That's where Rincon is. We actually own Rincon, FYI, everybody. So I'm in Carpinteria, and I've been hanging with my daughter all morning. My wife is surfing. She's at Rincon right now. 
And so I've been hanging with my six-year-old daughter this morning, and now I'm at my parents' house because I don't have internet at home. Very cool. And um, it has been a really fun late season. I'm in Ventura. You're in Santa Barbara. We've had great waves um, kind of late in the year, right? Yeah, really good. One of the best springs we've had in years. I mean, one to remember. Spring for us is like generally horrible. So to say we're having a good spring is like one notch above terrible. But there's been little south swells, which is not really much of a thing in Carpinteria for you in Ventura. It's good. But we've had these little like misto wind swells. So there's actually been like fun days at Rincon, and then there's this little spot in Carpinteria I surf that I cannot name. We just bleep uh, it out on the pod. I won't even. It's <laughs> Carpinteria is like Kauai. You cannot name spots. <laughs> uh, so I've been surfing there, and it's been super fun. It's been really fun. I've been stoked. I mean, I yesterday I surfed three times, and um, been surfing pretty much every day. We're blessed because our beaches have remained open. So that's been huge. I mean, I think this thing, I, I feel for people that like couldn't go to the beach for weeks and weeks and weeks. I couldn't, I couldn't even deal with that. Yeah. And those, those little wind swells are really fun down here too, but they, they kick up the, um, the undercurrent in the channel. So it gets freezing down here. My, uh, my kids are six and my son is really into it. And I taught him the other day how to go under waves for the first time. And he thinks right. that's like the best thing he's ever learned in his young life. He's like, legitimately squealing coming out the other side of waves and um on sunday i picked up like a squid lid for him for the first time and he hasn't taken it off since like he's wearing it upstairs <laughs> right now so it's been it's been really fun it's been really cold um but yeah it's been great wait so is he duck diving or are you just saying like go under with his body he just goes under with his body yeah. i i i'm calling it a duck dive for him but he's got like a little foam board and he has a body board but he's taken a few shots in the nose trying to go over waves yeah, so and yeah. he's still too small to push under but we were talking about it the other day because he's like came in just rubbing his nose and he's like oh he's like, i got hit in the face <laughs> i'm like all right we're gonna teach you how to go under waves i'm gonna try anyway or just bail the board or something so so uh, yeah my daughter fifi was asking me this week about duck diving she's all bummed out that she can't go yet and she's got this bethany board and it's a little too big for her to duck dive and she's all bummed about it she wants to be able to duck dive but the water is so much colder where you are it is. Yeah, it's, it is colder. I mean, but also the duck dive too is like, I, I didn't, I surfed for a few years without knowing how to do it. And then I kind of taught myself how to do it. It was like transformative, like my entire oh, session yeah. changed because I learned how to do it. Yeah. I mean, I only learned yeah. last year, but it was, it was. It was big deal. <laughs> remember that time that you um, ran me over at Snapper? I, I don't remember this, but I remember hearing about it. <laughs> and then I was like, oh no. <laughs> Luckily, I knew how to duck dive. <laughs> That's good. That's, yeah, exactly. I I didn't. I was just I was just on snapper snapper visor down, just surfing, and then I got in and I got a text from Nathaniel, and he's like, "Yeah, you ran right over," and I'm like, oh. <laughs> "My duck diving skills are major. Otherwise, I would have been lacerated." <laughs> well, on the topic of Channel Islands, how have you guys been dealing with the quarantine? Were you guys closed down? Did you furlough guys? And and are you guys back open? Yeah, we're just getting back open uh, as far as retail. Retail opened this last weekend, and we've got all the right measures in place for that. And the community has been amazing. They've been just turning up and shopping, and it's been really, really great to be open. And then to be able to bring a bunch of people back to work. I think almost everyone on the retail end came back to work. On the wholesale end on the, at the factory, we had to furlough quite a few people, which is a bummer. And we're just starting to ramp 
up again and bring some people back in. Ultimately, we went down to about 25% of production. We were able to keep a skeleton crew in place in the factory with keeping guidelines because, of course, you can, you know, people have their own shaping room and own glassing bays and all that stuff. So, um, but our online sales were amazing during that time. So it kept us in a good spot as a business. We were able to, you know, keep some people working and still make boards and online sales are just up, up and up. So we are just making customs. It's been great. And now that surf shops are opening back up, uh, we're starting to see a pretty quick ramp. I'm hoping that it's like a V-shaped recovery for everybody. And so far it's looking like it might go in that direction. Yeah. And I mean, everything's relative, but Channel Islands is not a huge kind of corporate organization. I can attest to that having been there dozens of times. But I mean, at the end of the day, it's just it's just a scaled up sort of platform for board builders and craftsmen. Is that is that kind of your take on it? Yeah, I mean, it's just a, it's just a surfboard factory. You know what I mean? Uh, it's a good one. You know, we've we've got really great people that work in, you know, uh, production and making our products and making the factory work well. So it's a super efficient factory. We've got cutting machines there. We've got lots of shaping bays. We have a glass shop in the factory there. And it's just all local guys that surf. Um, a lot of people that are in there have been with us for 25 or 30 years. You know, as I think in my mind around the shaping bays next to mine, it's guys that have been, yeah, with us for 20 to 30 years. And yeah, it's just a surfboard factory. But it's, you know, it's a good one. We're pretty enviro. We've got all the really good environmental stuff happening. Um, we're actually, I think at one time we were like maybe the first gold certified something factory in the world. Maybe I'm just making that up, but that's what <laughs> I was told. But we work pretty hard on that stuff. So it's pretty clean. It's pretty enviro. And it's great. It's just right up the hill from Rincon, literally two minutes from the water. So it's, it's a good place to be. Yeah, well, switching gears a little bit to yourself, because your story and the story of the Merrick family is really, really interesting. Um, I mean, you are part of a shaping dynasty that is Channel Islands, and your parents started in 1969. Can you can you give the listeners a bit of background on that story? Yeah, 1969. Um, my parents were kind of newly married. They'd, they'd been together for a little while. My mom was a seamstress and also a bikini model. So she's pretty hot. And my dad was a flower grower and a boat builder. And they were here in the area doing that, living in Summerlin, which is just up the hill from, or up the road from Carpinteria. And I think my dad started like anyone else during that time. You know, he got an old longboard and stripped off the glass and kind of reshaped it and, and did that kind of thing. And that kind of snowballed the way that it does, you know, making boards for himself. And then some friends asked, and then there came a period, they kind of had some options, but there came a period where they really believed that that's what they were supposed to do was pursue this surfboard thing. And so they borrowed 200 bucks, which amazingly is the only loan they ever took out for the business. I mean, they grew the business all these years incredibly, and that's the only loan. For them at the time, that was a lot of money. And with that 200 bucks, they bought some resin and some cloth and some blanks and just started doing it. And my dad would build the board start to finish, do everything one by one, you know, one at a time. And my mom was making clothes in the front. So you could come in and get a surfboard and my mom would make you some trunks and an Aloha shirt. And it's just a true mom and pop thing that started in Santa Barbara, right down by the harbor. And you were born three years later. So you grew up in this environment. Yeah, I mean, I literally grew up in the shop 
and in the factory. Um, you know, when my parents got started, they were super poor. We used to wait in line for government milk and cheese in our community here. Uh, my mom always worked two jobs. She'd work at the shop all day and then she'd come home and waitress at Sambo's in the evenings. So if I wasn't in school, there was nowhere else for me to be. So I was just skateboarding around the streets of Santa Barbara and surfing out front when there are waves and hanging out in the factory. I mean, my earliest memories are literally being in foam dust and playing with foam dust and just hanging out there. So yeah, I've, I grew up in a surfboard factory. And despite growing up in a surfboard factory, I think I, I read or I heard somewhere that you didn't actually start building boards properly until you were 18. Does that does that sound right? And, and if so, is that is that kind of late given your upbringing literally in the shaping bay? Yeah, you know, I was when I was growing up, I was always fascinated with what my dad did and making surfboards. And I I remember spending hundreds and hundreds of hours standing in his doorway, the doorway of his shaping room, watching him shape. I was just super fascinated by it. <clears throat> and I used to grab the bones from the blanks, which is when you cut the outline off, it's the excess along the rails. And I'd grab those and use his tools and shape like little boards, just sitting there on the floor of the shaping room. Joe Kern and I used to do it together all the time when we were little kids, make these little boards and stuff. And then, you know, my teenage years, I don't think I really grasped what I had in my dad being Al Merrick and the opportunities that were there. I mean, it was just, I so grew up in it that it just, I don't know, I don't think I really quite got it. And in my high school years, I was just kind of a nutcase. You know what I mean? I was like party guy and drug guy and all that stuff. And then I kind of started coming out of that um, when I was 18. And that's when I really started shaping was at that time. With the, the hell raising kind of teenager stuff, I mean, that's not unique to really anybody. Um, but yeah. what was it for you at the time? Do you think were you kind of rebelling against family or rebelling against the business? Or was it just more part and parcel of the culture in Santa Barbara at the time? Yeah, I think it was just kind of the culture that I found myself in. I mean, we all rebel, right? To certain degrees at one time or another. Um, I grew up in a Christian home and I definitely grew up in a, in a Christian environment and that was good and I appreciate that. But I think there just was a time as a teenager where I wanted to go the other way and it was really available here in Carpinteria. I mean, it was kind of what was happening. It was a thing to do. And... Yeah, I think just like anyone else during those years, and I'm kind of thankful to have gotten them done. You see some kids that kind of like keep the straight and narrow through high school and then they get to college and go nuts. And the consequences are just like way bigger once you're like beyond 18 and you're in college and like gnarly stuff happens. So I was kind of grateful to be a kid that kind of got it out of my system in high school, really. But it was serious. I mean, I got arrested for selling drugs on my high school campus, I was selling LSD and got arrested there and they walked me across the campus in handcuffs and my mom had to come and everything and that whole deal. So it was pretty serious for me and I'm pretty stoked to have made it through relatively okay. Yeah, I think, you know, when you're like a parent, if you get popped for selling LSD and arrested, the consequences are way worse. Like, but it's hard, like, cause as a parent, I think the same thing, It you kind of have to get that out of your system at some point. Ideally, you do it when it's younger, but it's it's not like you can design it for your kid and be like, I could go out and right. like break the law, you know, before right. you get, you know, before things get really serious. Because it's like, you know, I hope you get these life experiences, but at the same time, I hope you don't fuck up too badly. Yeah, no, it's a tough one, man. And, you know, I have a 19 year old son now and I'm I'm super grateful that he didn't go down the path that I went down. 
And I just don't, I just can't even, honestly, I've, I've apologized to my parents because I can't imagine what that was like being my mom or my dad during that time. I'm, that would suck. <laughs> well, and I guess that's it's another good point. Like some people, they they do actually absorb those experiences from other people and learn as opposed to like, you know, people like myself. I'm like, yeah, 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 I get the lesson. I'm going to go screw up myself, like kind of thing. And it's like, no, nope. like if you're well adjusted, you can probably just be like, I see what worked for that person and what didn't. I'm going to do this instead of that kind of thing. But so y- you end up kind of straightening up and flying right and going down the the tried and tested pathway of being a board builder um, at 18. Do you remember the first board you shaped and was it for yourself or was it for someone else? I do remember the first board I shaped and I still have it actually. <clears throat> it was a 610 round pin, which is a huge board. Like I ride 60s, 62s, you know, 64s now. Uh, but I was super into the soul thing back then. I don't know why. It was kind of a Santa Barbara vibe. and Maybe it was yeah. the LSD. It might have been that too. <laughs> I, yeah, Grateful Dead, LSD, Hendrix, all that. <laughs> so it was a 610 round pin, super stretched out, and I wrote it at Ringcon, and it was terrible. Like, it was, it was not good. I've seen so many people do so much better on their first board. Um, but... My dad came home and told my mom, Britt shaped a board today and it's good enough to glass, which was a big thing for my dad to say. So got it glassed and I wrote it and we still have it. I signed my name like huge on the stringer too. It was like a foot long, the signature. <laughs> for Brit by Brit. Yes. I like it. Custom. What about the first, do you remember the first board you shaped for someone else? Because that must feel like that's probably a huge step in, in becoming a board builder where you're like, this is now, I'm, I'm this is a profession I'm doing for someone else. Yeah, that's a huge thing. Of course, you know, during this time, everything that we're talking about is all hand shapes, right? This wasn't, there was, the computer thing had come into play already, but I was doing hand shapes. That's the way that I was learning and that's kind of what I was committed to. So there was a a couple of kids that had moved over from Kailua on Oahu, Mike and Pete Miller, these twins, and their brother worked at Channel Islands for years. And so they moved over to go to college here. They're going to UCSB and really good surfers, kind of like, you know, lower professional level surfers. Their their contemporaries were like Jason Bogle and that whole crew from the east side of Oahu. And Pete gave me a shot. They had Tokoros when they came over. They rode Tokoros and those boards were so sick. Like those guys were already killing it. And Pete was just a really, really sweet guy. He has since um, unfortunately passed on, but he was just a really sweet guy that gave me a shot, an incredible surfer. And, you know, this was during the narrow board era. So I think the board was supposed to come out like 17 and a half. They were pretty small guys. And by the time I got done with it, it was like 16 and a half (laughs) because I just kept working on the rails and working on the rails and working on the rails. And I know for a fact that board was terrible. But uh, he hand painted it like this red maroon color, no logos on it. And he surfed it at Rincon all that winter and just ripped on it. And I think that was a huge thing for me to have that gift of a really good surfer getting a board for me so early and surfing well on it. Because to this day, that's really what drives me. Like that's the most exciting thing in the world for me is making boards for really good surfers. It's also the hardest thing to do in shaping. You know what I mean? Like, it's not that hard to make a board that kind of goes fast, goes straight fast. But when you're making boards for good surfers, that's the hardest thing to do 
in shaping. And that's the thing that excites me more than anything else. I, I never thought about that before until this moment, but I think it might go back to that first opportunity that I had was a really good surfer who gave me positive feedback. And then I surfed with him every day at Rincon and got to see him rip. And that just like ignited something in me. I, in my mind right now, I can actually see waves in the cove at Rincon with him on that red board surfing it. And I'm, man, I kind of got chicken skin. Yeah, that was kind of a, a, a formative thing in my life, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I've shaped a couple boards for myself. And, and you talked about a little bit like, as bad as they were, it's like, it, it means so much to be able to go out and surf it. And you're like, I, I can't believe this works. I'm doing something magical on a thing I made, but it must be a whole other level to see, as you put it, like a really well-accomplished surfer surfing something that you made live in the flesh in front of you. Like that, that must be like so impactful. Yeah. It's really satisfying. You know, it really is. I mean, <clears throat> when you shape yourself a board, it's a really cool thing because you're committed to making that board work. Um, one of my great friends, Zeke Lau, one of our team writers, just shaped his first board in the last couple of weeks. And I called him afterwards, like, how'd it come out? How'd it come out? And he's like, oh, man, it came out terrible. It's going to work so bad. I said, no, man, it's going to work so good because you made it and you're going to be committed to finding out, like, how that board wants to express itself. Like, every board has some beautiful quality to it. And because you made it, you're going to want to discover what that is. And you're going to put that work into it, surfing it. And the other day he had like an eight hour session at um, Ala Moana on the thing and called me. It was just like, that thing works sick. It was this and that. And I was so stoked for him. Uh, so there's a certain satisfaction in making boards for yourself. But when it's someone else, I think for me, it's this deep, important sense of serving others, which is like a really sort of foundational um, mindset for my family and I is this idea of serving other people. And my dad taught me this as far as being a shaper. He said, the job of the shaper is to serve the surfer. The job of the shaper is to elevate his or her experience, the surfer's experience, and to elevate their performance and the joy that they get out of that thing. And to make, my dad said this to me, to make their dreams come true. You know, so he kind of like instilled that in me. I, I want to serve surfers in a way that makes their surfing dreams come true. So when you make a good board for someone else, especially at a high level, and they're accomplishing great things, it's this deep sense of having served them well, which I, I think really motivates me as a shaper. So that that. Um, philosophy of serving surfers. Um, if you were 18, that was, you know, 30 years ago. Were you building boards from, from then until now? Were you always in the factory? Did you ever, did you go to college? Were there any other pursuits for you in that, in that time frame? Yeah, I went to college. Um, <clears throat> I went to UCSB as you did, I think. Yep. Go Gauchos. And yeah. And kind of got out of there as quickly as I could. Wasn't <laughs> that committed to school, but my parents wanted me to finish. And um, they said they would kind of keep funding my lifestyle if I stayed in school. So I stayed in school. But during that time, I was working on shaping. And um, I was doing a lot of stuff for Channel Islands. I was a team manager. I did all of our marketing. I was working in retail, working in the factory, and then shaping in the shaping bay next to my dad and just having him teach me and show me daily. And then once I got out of college, I, I, I was full on, you know, stack of boards every single day. And um, that was that was my job and that was my passion. And it was an incredible thing to get to do it next to my dad. And I did that. I guess it would have been about 15, 12 or 15 years straight 
just full on shaping, tons of boards. And, you know, my dad would give me opportunities to shape for team guys a little bit. Um, I was Dane's first shaper. I was the first shaper that he ever had. Funny story about that. You know, I got Dane when he was just a little kid. He showed up at one of our team practices. My dad and I used to take the kids down to Backside Rincon and do these little team workouts. And this kid from Ventura named Jeff Brack brought Dane with him. And Dane was like, he blew our minds right away. So we just put him on the team right away. We're like, dude, you're on the team. And I started making his boards. They were one and three quarters inches thick at the time. And uh, <laughs> Same as now, uh, right? What's that? Same as now, right? One and three oh, quarters. Oh, yeah, yeah. Plus yeah. an inch. Yeah. <laughs> and um, Dane, you know, started getting really good. And he got to a point, I can remember, where my dad walked in my shaping room. Dane was blowing up. He was becoming the best surfer in the world. And my dad said, um, I'll be shaping for Dane now. <laughs> <laughs> How'd that go? Were you like, no, I got him here. What's going on? No way, dude. It's no. Al Merrick, man. Uh, I didn't say anything. Pat- Patter familias has spoken. Yep. That's just the way that it went. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, shaped, you know, uh, in the room next to my dad for all those years. And then I took several years off of shaping. And from the um, surf industry, I felt like there was other things I was supposed to do in my life. Namely, that was pastoring and starting a church here in the local community. And my intention was to do both. My parents used to do both in the 70s. Um, They used to have Bible studies in the factory and in the retail store, and they owned a little Christian coffee shop with some friends. And my dad taught Bible studies and stuff like that. And I kind of got started in the same way here in my hometown. I just saw these kids that were kind of going the way that I went in high school, and I wanted to be a positive impact on them. And the way that I knew to do it was through Christianity. So uh, my wife and I would go down to the beach and grab the kids and bring them back to my parents' house. And like we'd put a surf movie on and my mom would make food. And then we'd do a little Bible study and stuff. And that kind of snowballed into this whole church thing. I mean, at one point, we had 800 kids on a Friday night for Bible studies. So it kind of got out of control. And it was clearly, you know, to my family and I, it was pretty clear that that was something that God wanted me and, and my wife to do was pastoring and and starting churches. We ended up starting nine churches, but that was one of the most difficult periods of my life because I knew I had to walk away from Channel Islands and shaping during that time. And that was really hard for me and for my family. You know, my dad tells a story that from the moment I was born, he said to my mom, we're gonna build this business to give to this kid someday. So I was groomed for Channel Islands, you know, from the earliest age. And that was the family plan. That was a business plan is that I would take over. And that's why I was shaping, you know, next to my dad and learning from him and learning every aspect of the business. And this other thing happened and I knew that I just had to walk away from it. And it was hard. It was, you know, part of my identity. It was my livelihood. It was my passion. It was a huge, like sort of lens for how I understood the world and who I was and, you know, who my family was. And so that was a difficult period. And it went on for uh, almost a decade. I wasn't involved in Channel Islands. And then my daughter, I had a daughter named Daisy Love. And when she was five years old, she was diagnosed with cancer. And we fought cancer for about four and a half years. And then she died. Um, But before she died, one of the first team riders that I ever had, this kid here in Carpinteria named Brian Oresco. I was just hanging out with him yesterday at the beach with our daughters. Um, He showed up at my house one day and just knocked on the door. I hadn't even seen him in a while. And he said, hey, man, 
um, I want to build you a shaping room. I said, what are you talking about? He said, yeah, my, you know, my dad and I, we, we want to build a shaping room in your backyard. I was like, dude, I haven't shaped in years. And he goes, yeah, I think you should. I think it's important for you. And I, I, I think you should. And he and his dad just brought all the material, went in my backyard and built me the shaping room. And I went in there and shaped again. And this was during the time when my daughter was really, really sick with cancer. And we were basically living in the hospital for months on end. And when I wasn't in the hospital, I'd go in the shaping room and I rediscovered this thing that was so meaningful to me. And it was such a huge part of, of who I am. And in a way, it kind of saved me. When I was making surfboards again, for a moment, I, I wasn't thinking about how sick my daughter was. And I wasn't thinking about all the pain that I was experiencing through losing her. And it would just all disappear for the time that I was in the shaping room. And I think from that moment, I knew, man, this is a really important part of who I am. And, and I want to do this. And I had no aspirations to do it professionally again. I just wanted to feel the foam dust between my toes again with a planer in my hand. And I just wanted to do that thing. So I started doing that. It was just making boards for myself, made some boards for my wife, made some boards for um, Brian Resco and his dad, Paul, who made me the shaping room. Thanks, guys. Love you guys. And, um, and it was going well. And then Channel Islands kind of noticed that. Again, I wasn't involved. And, you know, they saw some of the boards that I was making and, and they invited me back into it which was really cool. And they invited me back into it by asking me to come shape for Dane. I think Dane was having a hard time, you know, getting some boards that were working for him at the moment and they were in a tough place with him. And um, they said, look, no pressure. You don't have to do anything more than what you want to do. We know that you've got this other gig and that's really important to you. But if you're willing, if you'd come make some boards for Dane. And so I just started at that home shaping room making boards for Dane. They were all hand shapes. You know, I wasn't doing any computer stuff, all hand shapes. And um, that kind of pulled me back in. You know, there's something that, um, <clears throat> you know, as, I, as I've gotten older, the idea of, of what a meditation is, you know, whether it's like walking or, or reading or actually like sitting there and clearing your mind or doing something with your hands, it, it almost sounds like for you, because it was so intrinsic in what you were brought up to do, like just being able to sit there and focus is like, was almost a form of meditation for you and in, in being able to focus yeah. on one thing at a time. Is that, is that an accurate read of, of how, how that worked for you? Yeah, that's, yeah, Dave, that's a great read. That is an accurate read. You know, I, I think that I would call that a focal activity. These activities that we hopefully all discover in life that so consume us that, um, we're able to block out everything else. They consume us like um, mentally, physically, and emotionally. And when we go into them and experience them, we, we come out of them as, in sort of this like with this cathartic experience. It's like a cleansing thing, you know what I mean? And a clarifying thing. So shaping still is that way for me. And that's definitely what it was. There's a few things in life that are that way. Surfing to some degree, depending on the crowd, you know. Uh, shaping always bow hunting for me is that sort of cathartic, all consuming focal activity. And I think it's really important in life that we discover those things. I think they help make us, um, whole and they help keep us well. So yeah, I'm grateful for the gift of shaping being that that's exactly what it was. And that's why I say to a certain degree during that time when my daughter being sick, it kind of saved me. 
as you were reintegrating back into the Channel Islands operations as a shaper, you mentioned something earlier about really you sat at an interesting nexus point of like building teams and doing marketing and shaping. And as someone who's been fortunate to wear different hats in my job too, I've found it like hugely valuable in the sense of like you take something from one role and apply it to another role and you're just using those insights. Um, Did you find when you were coming back into Channel Islands that the different roles you had prior kind of fed into your perspective on things? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I had done everything you could do to, you know, kind of in the business up until that point, having grown up in it. So I, I think I had a deep understanding of what it was. I had a deep appreciation of what it was. But my experience with team, I think, was really helpful. You know, like I said, I was a team manager, um, like in the 90s. And I just learned to really love surfers that we worked with. You know, I, th- I, I used to grab a bunch of groms and, and drive them up and down the coast in California, taking them to contests and, you know, putting them up in hotels and making sure they had food and then going down to the beach with them, making sure they had all their gear and then coaching them in heats and, you know, mourning their losses with them and celebrating their wins with them and then seeing them progress and making their boards and seeing their dreams come true. And you can't really do that stuff without starting to love those people. You know what I mean? And so I think that when I came back into Channel Islands and the ask was, hey, just start building boards for Dane. Um, I mean, it might sound kind of lame, but I, I already kind of loved him, you know, in a way that I think was helpful for making boards. And and then that that kind of drove my desire to start to do more is I, I think my experience at Channel Islands had taught me to love surfers and to value their sort of dreams and experience. So that drove me because I, you know, I don't, I don't really like get a thrill out of just, um, just sanding lines out of foam. That's not really my thing. I do a lot of hand shaping, all the boards that I design, I'll start as hand shapes. Um, then later on we scan them and, and do the computer thing. But for me, it's, it's deeper than just sanding lines. That doesn't really get it done for me. It's that deeper connection between surfer and shaper, I think. In Channel Islands has a, a pretty robust stable of shapers around the world and an, an even more robust team of, of global surfers. Who are the surfers that you work with directly today? Um, and, and maybe any insight you can provide the listeners into how that process works in terms of deciding to work with a shaper. Is it like dating or, or how does that work? Or does your dad yeah. come in and just poach the ones that are, that are popping? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you poach the good ones. Um, yeah, nowadays I'm you know I'm shaping for Dane as we've mentioned, uh, Mikey February, uh, Zeke Lau, Lakey, Sage, Nikki, I, a bunch of people on the team, and then you know amateur guys and, and other people as well. Um, and we have other shapers that work with the team as well. And it is, I guess, a little bit like dating. Some of it's circumstantial; you just kind of end up together. That's the way that it worked, but. You That's know, like dating too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just kind of, oh, she's there, I'm here, and you look good. Okay, yeah. let's. There's a pandemic. What are we going to do? Yeah, this is all we can do. Uh, but what's rad at Channel Islands is we have such an incredible stable of shapers that if one guy isn't clicking with a rider, we've got other options. And even though we're all working off the same designs, they're CI designs. You know, we all sand differently. We've got different nuances. There's different ways that we might approach rails or concaves. And some surfers just click with some shapers better. 
And that's a valuable thing. That's a cool thing. And I'm grateful that at CI, we, we kind of have a team and collaborative approach so that we could do that. And then we try to back each other up. You know what I mean? Like, um, I was having trouble with Dane recently and, uh, Mikey that shapes next to me made him a great board. And then I was able to kind of take some, some stuff from that and, and learn from that. And we kind of back each other up that way. And then once you click with someone, you kind of want to work on that relationship, you know? And I, some, we have some surfers on the team that I, I won't name names, but I just don't really click with them. So, well, that's like dating too. The, yeah, same. The, I mean, any, you, I'm glad you were talking about the team component to this because I mean, any team in any sport goes through phases, whether they're building or contending or dominating or rebuilding and channel islands over the years has had phenomenal groups of, of men and women on the team at the same time, you know, whether it's been. On the men's side, like, you know, Tom Curran and Kelly Slater, Bobby Martinez, Dane Reynolds, Jordy Smith. On the women's side, Kim Mirig, Lisa Anderson, Sofia Milanovic, Sage and Lakey. Because of what you and your family have built, you've attracted really like a cross-section of the world's best surfers. In 2020, if you had to describe the team phase as in terms of building or contending or dominating or rebuilding, how, how would you describe it and, and why? Yeah, that's a great question. Um I, I think we're in a little bit of a place of rebuilding right now. We've just kind of gone through a big shift in the business, you know, with my dad retiring fully and then me coming in and being the lead shaper and designer. Uh, we're kind of entering into a new season and we've had some churn. We've had some turnover, which is fine. That's all part of it. And so I, I think as we talk about it around the factory, we kind of want to rebuild. We have a robust team. We have a great team, but we kind of want to begin to rebuild that upper echelon, um, some of the best surfers in the world, which is exciting for us, you know, to do that. And our, our like legacy is so incredible. I mean, we have 20 world titles, you know what I mean? And some of the most meaningful surfing that's ever happened has happened on Channel Island surfboards. So that legacy is really cool. Um, but our goal is not just to preserve that legacy. We want to honor that legacy, but we want to build Channel Islands for the future. You know, what's Channel We just turned 50 this last year, and we're asking the question, what do the next 50 years look like, you know? And how can we elevate the surfer's experience? How can we continue to serve surfers and um, keep it really meaningful? You know, that's why wherever we build boards around the world, it's built by locals that live there, that surf. I just don't get like non-surfers building boards. I don't, I don't really get that thing. I'm just not interested in that. You know, for me, like what you as a person put into a surfboard is really important. Um, I think the vibe, the ethos, I think there's a spiritual component. Um, and we talk about that at the factory. You know, I talk about that with the guys at work. They're like, hey guys, we got to like keep a positive environment here and a positive attitude. We have to stay stoked and go surfing. We need to encourage one another and uplift one another because I believe that all of that stuff affects surfboards. You know, like the whole world works on vibes. We're all aware of good vibes and bad vibes. And we want to be surfers in a positive environment making boards. And, um, you know, I, I think it's important because people have life-changing moments on surfboards. Like we can all remember the first wave or the first barrel, or the first big wave, or the first really good turn. Like, even if it was just the first time that our dad or our uncle or auntie or whoever pushed us into a wave and we stood up and we felt that glide, 
for guys like us, that was a life-changing moment. And those life-changing moments happen all around the world thousands of times a year, and they happen on surfboards. So therefore, surfboards are actually really meaningful. It's a really meaningful thing. And so I think that building surfboards is meaningful. So that's the way that we kind of try to approach it. And we want to continue to approach it as Channel Islands. Like, hey, this is meaningful. This is important. This brings happiness and joy and positivity to people. So let's do it in that kind of environment. You mentioned that there was a little bit of churn happening. Is it difficult when longstanding team riders part ways with Channel Islands? I mean, I'd, I'd imagine it varies. You probably still build boards for some on the side and some it's probably, you know, don't work with that much anymore. But I, I mean, you guys have been around for so long and have had such high profile team riders and continue to to this day. Is it hard for you personally when someone decides like, oh, look, I got to step away from CI for a bit? Yeah, it can be. You know, sometimes it's not. A, a lot of times it's it's pretty mutual. Um, some guys are just hard to please and we appreciate surfers that are hard to please because those are the ones that make you a better shaper. I was talking to my dad the other day about this and, you know, he said that the hardest guy to shape for was Chris Brown. Chris Brown was so picky and so particular and he was never happy with his boards. But my dad's like, it made me such a better shaper. It's just motivated me and it made me work harder. And he was shaping for Chris and Kelly, who were contemporaries. And he said that Kelly wasn't as hard to please, but Chris was the one who pushed them so that he began making these really great boards for Kelly. Right. So sometimes someone that's hard to please is a real asset. Other times it could just kind of be like laborious and a bummer. And then you're kind of happy to see him go. And there's there's definitely those guys where it just becomes a bummer. But other times it's really painful because I think as I've been describing, shaping is really personal. And the relationship between the surfer and the shaper and is, um, I, at least I want it to be kind of a deep, you know, meaningful thing. So a lot of times it's personal and it hurts. And, you know, I, I think anyone could experience that or understand that rather. It makes total sense. Well, someone who um, has only gone from strength to strength being on the Channel Islands team and particularly with your shapes is on this week's segment of The Rear View presented by BF Goodrich. And we're going to watch her now. Lakey Peterson's going to take on Carissa Moore in the semifinals of the 2019 Margaret River Pro. As always, The Rear View is sponsored by BF Goodrich Tires. BF Goodrich is celebrating 150 years in 2020. And if you, the listener, want to wish BF Goodrich a happy 150th, you can tag at BF Goodrich Tires and use the hashtag BFG and WSL. Tag us and let us know what review segments you want to see in the future, and they might make it onto the show. Happy 150th to BF Goodrich, and thank you for supporting these conversations. WSLstore.com is powered by Shopify. We love the analytics we can check on the go. A lot of us are addicted to checking the Shopify app on our phones. We also love the automations and marketing integrations with our social and YouTube channels. It has incredible features to help us manage our global audience, including international taxation support and great shipping optionality. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek skis, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. 
from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lineup, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lineup now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lineup. All right, so scene set for today's rear view. It's the 2019 Margaret River Pro. Tatiana Weston-Webb had just dusted Sally Fitzgibbons in the first semifinal, and we now have Santa Barbara and CI team writer Lakey Peterson up against Carissa Moore in semifinal two. If Carissa wins this heat, she actually takes over the top spot for the rankings. So this is where we're at. Um, Britt, have you ever been to Western Australia? I have. It was uh, quite a few years ago. I can't even remember how many, but I, I've been to Margaret's, and gosh, I had a terrible session there. I could not that <laughs> it's way a tricky wave. <laughs> when when you went to Margaret's, did you surf main break? Did you surf any of the other breaks around there? Um, surfed main break, and then the people that we were with took us to some misto spots. I can't even remember what they were. I just remember they were kind of scary. And <laughs> but man, that place is unreal. It just feels so wild and like pristine and beautiful. It was it was it was cool. And when did you first meet Lakey Peterson? You know, Lakey grew up in our community here, so I've known her since she was a little kid. She's just always been around surfing Rincon and, you know, whatnot. And she's rode our boards the entire time. Um, I think that I really connected with Lakey deeply. She was going to the youth group at our church years ago. And so she was aware of my daughter, Daisy Love when she was sick and Lakey became a huge supporter of Daisy and Daisy just loved Lakey. In fact, I remember when Lakey won the US Open, she had Daisy Love written on her board or maybe it said pray for Daisy, something like that. And when she um, won that event, she dedicated it to Daisy and Daisy and I were watching it when she won. And I wasn't shaping at the time. Uh, that was during my time off and we were actually living in Israel seeking alternative treatment for Daisy. And we, we watched Lakey win that contest and it meant so much to Daisy. And I, I think I like through that got really connected to Lakes, feel really connected to her, really appreciate her. And she's someone who, um, you know, com compared to a lot of the other world title contenders and people that make it on the CT, she kind of got started a little bit later in life with surfing but got so good so quickly. Um, and it's just, there's something about her. Like if you had to kind of, the special sauce that Lakey Peterson has, how would you define it in terms of like talent or, you know, mental strength or what do you think you, what do you think kind of makes her stand out amongst the, the world's best? Well, I think 
Uh, athleticism for sure. Mm. You know, her entire family is incredibly athletic. Her mom was um, an Olympian or, or meant to go to the Olympics as a swimmer. Uh, her sister is super athletic. Her brother, all of them are really athletic. And, and Lakey was always kind of a jock when she was growing up. Did all the sports and did really good at them. Was great at skateboarding and everything. So I think pure athleticism, but then dedication and determination. I don't know anybody that works as hard as Lakey. Like she just works really, really hard all the time. And it's one of those things that's been coming up a lot in these podcasts about like levels uh, on your way to becoming a world champion. And I know like the surf industry loves to kind of preordain a lot of people when they're really, really young of like this person was born to be a champ. But even talking to people that have had that, you know, that for them, it's levels. I remember Mick was saying like he didn't feel personally like he was worthy of winning a world title until you know several years into the tour um and he's probably one of the most hyped people ever in terms of when he came up and and what people were saying about him and for someone like Lakey it it feels like the same thing like she's just jumped in terms of levels and it's either been a fitness thing or a board thing when did you start shaping for Lakey and and what was it like taking over over in terms of that relationship for her yeah I started shaping for her it was um it was before the beginning of the season a couple of years ago where she won snap snapper, right? When it was held down at Kira. So that was the first time that she had really uh, ridden my boards in, in competition. And we were just surfing Rincon together one day as we have for years. And she said, you know, do you, do you like ever shape for any girls on the team? And at the time I, I wasn't really, most of my team riders were guys. And I was like, oh, no, not, not at the moment. And she said, you know, would you like to start shaping for me? I'd be stoked to work with you. And I think like, again, our relationship was already pretty cool because of, you know, she attended our church and my daughter and all that stuff. And so I think there was just this natural relational connection that made us want to work together. And it clicked. It clicked. And the boards were going really well for her. And um, I think it elevated her game a bit as evidenced by her win, I think, right after that. That's a good start. You mentioned earlier in the podcast about how, um, you know, the shaper stable at Channel Islands really have each other's backs. So Lakey has been a longtime team writer there. So she would have been writing for someone else before she jumped to you. How does that conversation go with the shaper she was working with? I'm sure they're all different, but I'm curious to know how it went with Lakey shaper at the time. Well, it was an interesting thing with Lakey shaper at the time. Uh, he was one of our top shapers. He was doing a lot of team. And right at that same time, we actually had to let him go. So it was totally unrelated to Lakey. Uh, it was some work stuff. And that was a, a, a super difficult thing. So that just kind of worked out for Lakey and I. Um, we were going to have a conversation about that. And sometimes those go well, sometimes you know, they can be awkward, <laughs> you know, because it's all so personal. But that particular one was just a weird circumstance where he stopped working for us right as Lakey and I were planning to start to work together. And so that just kind of felt like it was meant to be in some unfortunate way. And I, I really, really miss and love that guy and uh, wish he was still there. Yeah, it's hard. One of the things I've noticed on tour that I didn't know and that a lot of people might not know is that even though someone rides for a particular shaper, often they'll be trying shapes from other shapers that come in. Um, have you ever worked with anyone like Carissa, who was also in this heat, or any of the other women on tour in terms of just Channel Islands giving them a few boards to try, even though they might be committed to another shaper? Uh, yeah, that happens. Uh, it hasn't happened with any of the gals lately. Um, 
but in the last few months, there's been a, a lot of guys that have approached us that we've right. been making boards for, and I don't really feel comfortable sharing their names. No, that's fine. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Maybe when we're off air, I'll let you that's know. Right. <laughs> Give us all the dirt. Um, Chris is getting up here. Can, can you walk us through Chris's way from your perspective? Yeah, well, first of all, Chris is incredible. And Carissa is, uh, she's surfing great, you know, three big turns right there. How heavy is that in section? Uh, and, you know, Chris is kind of a thing for Lakey. Obviously, they've been battling and, and Chris has often had her number, which was why I think that this win was so meaningful mm. for Lakey, especially, you know, in surf like this. Yeah. Carissa definitely has an advantage Oof. in surf like this coming from Hawaii and has a lot of experience in larger surf. And then Lakey coming from Santa Barbara, larger surf is just not really a thing for us at all. And so she, at this time, was working really hard. She was working really hard on upping her sort of, you know, bigger wave game. Yeah. Um, you know, solid waves. She was spending a lot of time with Snips in Hawaii working on stuff and uh, really putting effort into that. And this was meaningful for me because we had been working really hard on her boards. Right in general, but especially for waves like this, um, which I think was a, a big hurdle for Lakey to kind of get into where there's a lot more water moving and feel comfortable on her boards. And I was working really hard on the design end of it. And uh, I remember this board right here. My son actually painted that board for Lakey. What was the model and, and what were the so what were the dimensions, if you remember? Yeah, that one is a, during this contest, she was riding, I, I think, a 510, even up to a 60 at a certain point. Her normal boards, she's usually on a 59. Um, this one was a 510, and it was a modification of a Rook 15. Rook 15 is a longstanding model that we have, you know, that my dad designed. A lot of the team rides Rook 15s on the regular still. But for Lakey, they're pretty heavily modified. Uh, I changed the outline on them. I changed the contours between the fins on this one. I changed the way that the rocker breaks in front of the fins and the way that the rocker curves through the fins and the exit rocker. So it's pretty modified. You wouldn't even necessarily call it a Rook 15 anymore. And it was pretty specialized for her. I was going to ask you, but you kind of answered my question before I got to it. The Are there general principles outside of just, you know, longer, more volume that you work on with surfers as they, as you said, they want to step up their bigger wave game and, and, and do those philosophies apply to all surfers or is it pretty bespoke to like a Lakey Peterson might be a different approach to like a Dan Reynolds might be a different approach to a, a Parker Coffin or something like that? No, I, I think the principles apply to all surfers. I mean, there's two things happening when we're riding waves. We're either trying to generate speed or we're trying to control speed. Right. So in small waves, the approach of the surfboard needs to be um, that it does well generating speed. In bigger waves, you just have to be able to control it. So the wave provides all the speed, all the power. Now you have to be able to harness it and control it. And so those are two totally different approaches to a surfboard, two different approaches to rockers, to outlines, to contours. I was just speaking with Zeke Lau last night on the phone and we were talking um, we're already talking about his boards for next winter. And that was exactly the thing. You know, I had made him this board um, before the tour was canceled, a brand new one for him this year. And it was working really, really good in small waves. And what we do with Zeke's boards is we'll take his small wave boards and we just start to scale them up and see how big we could go. When he won Sunset a couple of years ago and did really well at Sunset this last year, he was just riding a scaled up shortboard. 
he was riding what I make him as a 6.0, but in a 6.9. Mm. Now, obviously, we changed stuff, but it was just scaled up. And then this year, he was looking for more control. And, you know, Sunset's kind of a unique place. Sunset versus Pipe versus Haleiwa. Those are all unique approaches. So our conversation last night was, okay, this new board you made me works insane as a 6.0. It's got so much speed, so much get up and go, so much lift. But when it gets into a 6.2, and I'm surfing it over here, he's in Hawaii right now, I'm having a hard time controlling it. It's got too much get up and go. Right. So then my thought as a designer is, okay, how do I detune this thing? How do I you know, bring it down so that it's not so on top of the water, it wants to sit down in the water. It's not creating lift um, and speed, it's scrubbing speed. And it, it's you know, got a higher degree of control when there's a lot of power. So that's kind of what's going on there design-wise. I'm trying to get a handle on this heat here. So we've got a couple of seven sixes. Uh, Curse has got priority. Do you watch many um, CT events on webcasts? I'm just curious. I watch every single one of them pretty watch much them all the heats. Yeah, 100%. I'm so into it. It might be just a function of the guests we have on, but like Taylor was the same. Like uh, every, every person that comes on is like, I, I watch them all, you know? Oh, I, I can't wait. Dude, the worst thing in the world is when they're like delayed and lay days and stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. You know when you're all amped, like, okay, it's sick, the comp, I'm going to watch it. And then it's like a lay day and lay day and lay day. I'm just like, oh, we got to figure out a way to just run these things. Because, like, <laughs> That's right. That's why amped. the QSs are kind of nice because you're like, there's no lay days, man. You're all on. They I'm just run. Get, they just get run. my fix today. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a super fan. I'm, I'm always watching and listening to the commentary and judging every single wave. I try to drop a score for every single wave. Well, walk us through this one for Lakey. Oof. Yeah, big turn right there. You know, this is a really hard wave to surf. There's warbles in it, obviously. You can tell she's super in the zone and super determined. And, you know, three solid turns on that wave. You can tell she feels good about it. I guess she needed a 7-1-7 at this point to advance. And I'm assuming she got it on that wave. It does look like she's getting more comfortable as this heat goes on. It's probably a function of what you're talking about too. her working with her coach, her working on her boards of aggressively attacking the wave, which at main break is such a hard thing, you know, because it's like so much water moving. It's irregular. Um, it's slopey. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, you can see right there when she came off the bottom, there's a huge bump right in the middle of the bottom turn. Another one there. So those bottom terms look pretty sketchy, but she's able to do well and get back up into the lip and and get the business done up there. But yeah, and that's that athleticism tough. you're talking about with her, right? She's able to react so quickly to changes like that. Yeah, and we were talking about how surfers kind of go through levels. I just saw a clip from Lakey. She's in Australia right now with her husband, Tom. They've been doing the COVID thing over there. I just saw a clip of her and I was blown away at how she's surfing. And I'm watching this heat right now and I'm like, no, Lakey's so much better than this now. Right. You know, I, I think she hasn't peaked yet. She's already been on the tour for several years. I don't know, eight years maybe or something mm. like that. And she has not peaked yet because the clip I just saw online of her surfing, it was like a whole different level. I'm super excited. I can't wait for the tour to start up again. Well, and she, uh, you mentioned your husband, Tom, he's Australia and they live down by Bell's Beach. So she gets to spend a ton of time over there. Channel Islands, um, you know, has a footprint in Australia when your team riders are over there, particularly Lakey, are they working with the local shapers over there at Channel Islands, or are you still sort of getting boards to her from from the factory in Carpinteria? Uh, in the case of Lakey right now, she, you know, just before she went over there, had a huge batch from me. So she's just working through those. We've been talking about those boards um, a bit. 
while she's gone. But in general, we try to get our team members to get boards from our guys in Oz because they're able to specialize. You know, we've got uh, Thomas, TJ, who shapes right there on the Gold Coast near Snapper, and he's able to really specialize for that area. And then we've got a team of shapers, the boys uh, down in Avalon. And so it's really a, um, like a really big benefit for our team members to be able to go over there and get our designs tweaked by those guys for those areas. And sometimes they really, really click. Um, other times they feel comfortable with the equipment that they have. What I love is if they show up somewhere in the world and they don't feel comfortable with their equipment, which happens for everybody, then we have options for them over there. And I think that's a, a real benefit as a team. That's an interesting thing you bring up too, because, you know, it wasn't too long ago I started um, retail in a surf shop back in the late 90s, early 80s, doing board ordering and stuff like that. And we would get a lot of imports from from Australia. Um, we're starting to, you know, there's DHs and JSs and stuff, um, Chile's. And um, it was at a time when, you know, the Australian shapers were still shaping kind of for Australian waves. And we'd get mm -hmm. customers coming in and they'd be buying boards for trestles and being like, this doesn't work, you know? And, and, Vice versa, you, you, at the same time, you get a bunch of surfers coming in from overseas, whether they're Australian or Brazilian or European or Hawaiian, bringing their boards and finding out, like, I, I, maybe I should be working with a Timmy Patterson or a Mayhem when I'm here at Trestles. Do you think that yeah. still exists today? Or do you think that sort of that, that elite tier of shapers has gotten better rounded at being able to shape, you know, internationally, I guess is a way to put it. Yeah, I, I think for the elite tier of shapers, we've had to figure it out. You've got to be able to make the boards work around the world. I remember um, in 1991, I went to France for three months and I stayed with Tom. Tom, he was married to Marie at that time, Tom and Marie Curran. And Tom was starting to ride some Maurice Coles at that time. And I remember talking to him about it and he's like, listen, your dad's boards work incredible in point waves, but in these beach breaks over here, there's a lot of water moving. It's a different sort of wave. These boards are just working better in these waves. And that was kind of the first time for me where it really like, I was getting an education from him on how different waves and different setups would require different boards. And um, that was kind of eye-opening to me. And I've always thought about that since then. So I think that for guys like us who are shaping for people on the tour, we have to be able to know how to make boards work across different waves and conditions. And, you know, when a surfer comes to us and they're like, hey, I'm going to West Oz, we're designing their boards around West Oz. And Lake yeah. is going to take a different batch of boards to West Oz than she is to the Gold Coast. Yeah. And I think that it, that might be one of the benefits of, I mean, one of the many benefits, I suppose, of, of working with CT athletes is, getting to shape for all conditions and then having that confidence translate back to the consumer in the sense of like, yeah, I want to get a board that's going to be able to work in hollow waves or small waves or reef breaks or point breaks. And knowing that if they go to Channel Islands or, or whoever, that, that they feel like that is going to work. Yeah, that's really important. Then at the same time, it's really important to make boards that are good all the way around because not every, you know, we're talking about elite athletes here, but the bulk of what we do is average surfers and they can't necessarily have a different board for every wave that they surf. So we got to be able to make boards that are going to work in the majority of, of waves for the majority of surfers. And that's a challenge in and of itself. And so we'll take things that we learn from elite surfers and then try to translate that 
toward average surfers. And it's not as huge of a hurdle as people might think. But for example, like the Happy um, that we have in our line, our high-performance shortboard is originally a handshape that I did for Dane and then developed it quite a bit with um, Zeke and Lakey as well. And now that's one of our most popular boards as far as an all-around board in most waves for most surfers and translates into a really good travel board. It's huge in Bali and Indonesia and places like that. So it's a fun challenge. How do I satisfy the surfer who's like, okay, I live here in California, but I'm going to take this board on my trip to Indo and it's got to work there as well. I can't get six boards, you know, I'm going to have a couple of them. So that's a pleasing thing when a surfer from California goes to somewhere like Indo and they're like, dude, this board worked insane. And then you see him surfing Rincon on it. You're like, okay, cool. Mission accomplished. It's been a while since we've seen surfers on the CT really experiment with boards, you know, in CT competition, you know, the ones that stand out from, from my tenure on tour are really kind of like, you know, Kelly um, on the wizard sleeve at Snapper Rocks or Kelly on the deep six at Pipe or, um, Wardo on the five, five at snapper rocks or Dane on the MTFA in France or Dane on the dumpster diver at trestles. Or actually I remember Felipe Toledo was riding like a quad firewire at Bali one time too, but it's been a while. Like, and it feels like more and more the CT surfers are just sticking with their kind of Ferrari boards. Um, have you noticed that too? Do, do you, do you long for more experimentation from, from your CT surfers in live competition? Uh, you know, I don't necessarily long for it for, for a couple of reasons. From the shaping standpoint, again, that's the hardest thing to do is make the Ferraris. That's the most difficult thing to do. Um, so that keeps me intrigued, you know, and to do those consistently and to keep them improving and to have them work across a splay of waves throughout the globe. That's a really challenging thing that as a designer shaper continues to motivate me. But then I understand, so I don't necessarily have a need to like branch out for them. Like I'm, I'm stimulated enough keeping their quivers, you know, where they want it to be as far as the Ferraris. But then I understand their perspective, like every heat for these guys and girls is kind of a life and death thing. So it, you can't really run the risk of trying something super different. The judges have expectations. Uh, your competitors are gonna set a certain kind of bar. So it really takes someone unique, like the surfers that you mentioned, to be willing to branch out. But so I think a lot of it is a safety thing. But at the end of the day, like it's pretty intriguing that your standard thruster with PU foam and PE glass is like still the cutting edge high performance thing. And I think that's telling that that says something about what really, you know, works best in surfboards. I don't think for them it's not, I don't think it's just they don't want to risk alternative materials. I think there's something really valid about these almost ancient materials that we use. I mean, the guys started using these in the 50s and we're still doing it. Yeah, that makes sense. You probably get to spend a bit of time on tour um, when it's back on. Um, and you probably get to have a look at the other equipment by by your competitive shapers out there. Who in your mind is at the top of the list in terms of building Worldcraft surfboards on 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 the CT? Uh, well, obviously all the guys, you know, um, DH and and JS and uh, Mayhem and all those guys. Patterson now more. Uh, we're starting to see more Hawaiian shapers in there with Takoro and Robinson on Arakawas. And 
I think kind of the usual list of suspects. Oh, and I love hold on. I think looking we got at boards. Scramble in the heat here, real quick. Looks like oh, a shark delay. Shark delay. Good I grief. had forgotten that that happened, but that's a that's a crazy thing. He's the okay. Let's see if we see it. Nope. Scramble. Oh man. I, <laughs> Like, did they did they see it or they, did they just get told? I don't know if they got told, but like they definitely looked at each other and then bolted for the uh, the water patrol. This is such an insane thing. I know that we're kind of, I mean, I'm I'm always blown away, but I know we're even you and I are probably desensitized to it because it happens occasionally. But it's like the comparison I make is like imagine being like a defensive back during a football game and being like, oh, and by the way, there might be like you know a pack of wolves that get released onto the field at some point. Just just bear in yeah, mind, yeah, yeah. you know, kind of thing. Or, <laughs> or you're a, or you're like a snowboarder and there's polar bears. That's like, right. <laughs> right on the side of the half pipe that could come out of the trees at any moment. Yeah, it's it's pretty unique. Uh, I like it. I like it. Yeah, as long as no one gets hurt, I like it. I um, yeah. <laughs> have you uh, have you surfed? Have you have you seen sharks when you've been surfing throughout your life? Yeah, our area here is pretty sharky, and I, I've seen quite a few. I was just surfing the spot in Carp yesterday. And I was surfing with a guy there who's from Hawaii. And I was telling him about the last time I saw a shark in the lineup there. And it was like inside the lineup. It was like between the rocks where you paddle out. I was paddling out and there's just like this great white right there. And he splashed me like I startled him and he splashed me. And uh, I was telling him about that and he got all freaked out. It seems like Hawaiians are the most like not stoked on shark people in the world. <laughs> it's, 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 like, it's part of Hawaiian culture. It's supposed to be like their ancestors, right? No, they don't like him, dude. I took <laughs> Zeke Lau surfing at this spot north of Santa Barbara this year, and he was so freaked out. You know, north of Santa Barbara, gets yeah, pretty yeah. sharky. He was time. like, he was not into it. The waves were so good, and he was so ready to leave. <laughs> I, I ask surfers all the time, like, especially when we're at this spot in like West Oz or J-Bay or something. I'm like, is it on your mind? Like when you're competing and they're just like some of that. Some of them are like, yeah, but most most of them, maybe almost, yeah, maybe almost every one of them now that I think of it, like, no, I don't think about it at all. And I'm like, I kind of understand why you'd block it out, because how do you how do you perform at such an elite level when that's on your mind? Yeah, you can't. You can't. Yeah. You can't be thinking about that. Yeah, you've you've got to block that out. It has to be a fully focused moment or you're you're doomed. Yeah. They are majestic when you do see them in the water. I mean, I've seen them a few times and I'm always kind of like mesmerized because they're just such beautiful creatures. But yeah, I guess it's the the ones you see or you're okay. The ones you don't see, the ones you're worried about. It's the ones you don't see that get you. Our area has been crazy the last few years, right? Yeah. Like Santa Barbara, Ventura, there's been so many great whites around. It's just unreal. And it's become a really normal thing to see them. And it wasn't that way when we were growing up, right? Right. Yeah. I have an amateur naturalist theory, though, that keeps me um, keeping it out of my brain, which is that as they sort of make their trip down the coast seasonally, that they just sail past Point Magoo and kind of hang around the Channel Islands, and then they don't reconnect with the coastline until they hit L.A. County. So I'm like, nah, they were fine. They're not going (laughs) to Send them to L.A. L.A., stay home, and here's your sharks. (laughs) That's right. Go away. But yeah, no. You know what? I just don't, I just don't care, like. I mean, okay, everyone's going to die. This might sound horrible. You're probably going to get bad feedback about this, but everyone's going to die. But if you go by shark attack, it was a legendary way to go. (laughs) You will remember it. (laughs) Or you won't remember it. It will be remembered. Excuse me. You won't remember it. Oh, here's Renato. He's probably downplaying the size of the shark. He's like, oh, it's a three-footer. We're just safety first, and we're going to get back out there. 
Hey, you almost are lip syncing them perfectly. You should yeah, keep yeah. doing that. Yeah, yeah. What you should do? What you do? What's it? What's it? Bad lip reading. We just make it up. Yeah. <laughs> that actually worked right in that moment. That was good. Yeah, he's one of the rare people that's actually gotten younger on tour. Oh yeah, that's weird. Back out there. Okay, they're back. Okay, in the water. so that think, that would be kind of a gnarly moment jumping back in the water. I think I would just be emotionally exhausted. <laughs> Yeah, you would be. And then how's this for them? Because this heat is so intense. Lakey just took the lead with an 8.1. And now I think Carissa needs an eight something. So as an athlete, like that would be, uh, is that a benefit or a liability to have that delaying game? Yeah. And how are you not being like, I'm glad it moved on. I'm glad we have like an army of uh, people watching over us out here. I mean, the water safety people, wherever we are, are kind of amazing um, in a lot of ways. But yeah, geez, I, I just, I would struggle to focus. Yeah, that, uh, that would be tough. And now they're just sitting there, no sets coming. Look, they're kind of close together. <laughs> they're like, suddenly they're just buddy-buddy. Yeah, well, they're like, and, and it's so, it's like, the thing about main break too, it's so far away from the shoreline that it's kind of like, there's they, for sure there's a delay in communication where you're like, they call it off again. Like, are we going to know right away? Like, are we sure we're supposed to be back out here? More scrambling. So I'm assuming you would know, but since the whole Mick thing, I mean, the WSL has like gotten pretty serious about sharks in certain areas and trying to mitigate that risk and observation and, or how does that work? Oh yeah. I mean that I was, um, I was here in this room when that happened, because like, my kids were really young, so I wasn't traveling too much at that point or as much. And I remember admittedly, I fell asleep during the semifinals and woke up right at the start of the finals. And when it happened, I didn't think it was real. I was just like, mm. nah, I'm still dreaming or something. And then I was so tired that I just kind of was like, oh, you didn't get bit. This might not be a thing, you know? And then I'm like, this is a big thing. Um, but yeah, it, immediately we, we, we kicked in. I mean, the response on that day was amazing to begin with, but yeah, we kicked in like a ton of protocols at spots. This Carissa's right back up. This looks like the biggest wave of the heat too. That was the biggest wave of the heat. And what if she needs an 837? Uh, I mean, the focus to be able to do that after yeah. <laughs> experiences. Yeah. Lakey on the next wave, it's smaller, a bunch of white water in the face. Just Yeah, but I mean our our I mean the response on the day with Mick and Julian was was really amazing. But it was just one of those things too that after it happened, and I talked to Mick about this a little bit, like everywhere we went, there was a shark thing. He had a shark thing everywhere we went. I, we went to Tahiti yeah. and there was a shark that went through the lineup and we went to Trestles and there was like a sh- sharks out the back, you know, and it was just one of, and like Huntington was getting sharks. It was just one of those things that like, we really, Weird. we really kicked in um, pretty heavily, like observation with drones and, you know, uh, sonar buoys at places we could have it. And then the ski drivers as well. And, and, you know, I was talking to Kanoe Garashi about this the other day and, and he was one of the guys that's like, Hey, I feel completely safe during a heat out there. Mm. Like the amount of surveillance that's going on. Like I've, I feel way safer during a heat than I do free surfing. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. I mean, I was at J Bay this year and I free surfed a lot and that place, that place gets a little bit spooky. This, the water feels so alive there. Like those little fish are always jumping everywhere. And then all of a sudden there's like a bigger fish that jumps. And then you're like, wait, how big was that big fish? And when you're free surfing, there's no backup. I would feel more comfortable during the heat because you guys are doing a lot of stuff. Yeah. I mean, J-Bay, that's where I've seen a couple that have come through the lineup. And it's like, because you just have that basically the the Finding Nemo underwater highway out the back of the lineup there. So it's a guarantee they're coming by like every day. And and the surfers there are kind of like same deal. They're like, oh, if you see it, it's no big deal. 
That's the ones yeah. you don't see. You got to worry about them. Like, it doesn't make me feel any better, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> and do you, so are you more scared when the water's clear or murky? I mean, it's pretty murky in Ventura. I mean, I, I think it's also like, it's a, it's a perception thing. Like you were talking about before, like when we were younger, there weren't as many, but also maybe there were, there were just less people noticing it, like, or it just wasn't being filmed or noticed. But I, I think that is part of it. I think also them being a protected species where we live is part of it. I think there's more yeah. of them. I think overfishing is part of it, but I don't know. I, I like it when it's clear cause I can see things. Although sometimes the things you see are just like, I'd rather not like, <laughs> <laughs> well, because I was thinking about that Jay Bay this year, because there were certain days I was surfing and the water was really clear. Oh yeah, and it had a certain feeling. And then there'd be like a bunch of swell, and it would kind of get all murky. Sure, and I had a different feeling. I think I liked it more when it was clear. Yeah, it feels it. like it's less likely to happen, and also because I think too prevailing scientific theories, it's often a case of mistaken identity, right? So, mm. you know, if it's murkier, I guess the odds are that it's easier for it to happen then. So Caruso's wave came through. That's an 8-2. It was just shy. It's a good score, yeah. though. I think that was probably the right score for that wave. I think it was really, really close. I mean, <clears throat> you have to compare that wave to Lakey's 8-1, mm -hmm. and it was a bigger wave. Uh, I don't think her first two turns were as critical, or maybe her second term wasn't as critical. I think that was a fair score. You know, I, I always drop scores, and I pay attention to the scores. I think that the judges, most of the time, get it right, the vast majority of the time. I think they do a really, really good job. It's it's rare where it's kind of like, I think they do a good job. Yeah, I mean, I, I got to travel. I, I still do. Um, you know, I traveled with the judges on tour um, most of my career. And, um, yeah, they're all such good surfers, and they really, really care about getting it right. Um, and it is a tricky job. I, I think it's arguably, like, one of the most consistently – and passionately watch subjectively scored sports on the planet. I know you get like the Olympic ones that pop up every four years, but like every month you've got yeah. surfing happening when it's happening. And, um, yeah. you know, everyone's tuning in and being like, I don't know if that was a seven. You know, like, yeah. Right. Yeah. No question. Well, three minutes left and Chris needs a seven, seven, seven. You talked about this being a real pivotal moment in in Lakey's kind of career because she she beat Carissa. She she did so in like pretty sizey waves. Do you guys talk about that kind of stuff after a heat like that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we talk about it on a board level, of course, but then also just on an inspirational level. You know, like how she how is she feeling? What's her headspace? What did that mean to her? What does that do for her confidence going forward? I mean, she's got her coach Snips, which they're obviously doing the real deep processing on how it went. Um, for me, it's boards and it's inspirational, trying to help support Lakey so that she feels confident. And this was a huge confidence builder for her, both because it was against Carissa in sizable waves. And she'd been working toward that goal, both just getting comfortable in waves like that and her boards. So yeah, we talk about that, the confidence thing. And the last couple of years, you know, she narrowly missed the title. Yeah. And we had a lot of talks about that. You know, what does that mean? And how do you bounce back from that? And how do you turn that into a positive so that you, you, you take some fire into the next year? And I, it's a fairly unique experience for a surfer to come as close as she came two years in a row and kind of have it all slip away because of one wave that's that's hard for any person to process and kind of bounce back from but I she's spoke, 
Yeah, I was speaking to Chris a little bit about that too at the uh, at the end of last year, and she says it's so rare for someone to be able to come back even after one time, right? Because it's so emotionally draining when you get that close and you kind of the next year you see a lot of people kind of fall back. But she goes, that's the point of difference with Lakey is that she doesn't she's able to shake it off and like keep driving back towards it, um, which which as she yeah. said is super rare. Yeah. You mentioned uh, Parsons before, um, Lakey's coach. Does he have a ton of feedback for you, or do you work closely with him on Lakey's boards, or is he mostly kind of on the strategic side and, and you're on the, the design side and, and Lakey's kind of the fulcrum between you? Uh, we've, we've talked back and forth only a little bit about her boards. I mean, generally, if the boards are going well, you're not going to hear from the coach. Um, and all the coaches are different. Some of them are more, more involved in the boards. Um, you know, Snips and I had a conversation year before last about fin placement, and he had a couple ideas about moving the fins around a hair. And sometimes the coaches talking about boards is helpful. Sometimes it's not. <laughs> <laughs> but Snips, his fin thing, his fin thing was helpful. Yeah. So I don't hear too much about. Uh, about it from him because I think for Lakey, the boards have been working well and progressing. So, well, it looks like that last score didn't come in for Carissa, but Lakey gets to get cleaned up at the end of this heat, which Look is at this set. That, oh my gosh. That's always fun when there's sharks out the back and you don't want to sit outside anyway. <laughs> just like, and she's by herself in the lineup now. Yeah. Gosh. You're just like, maybe I just go in. <laughs> yeah. I would have turned around and taken that white water in. Yeah, that's right. You do, it's it's such. I mean, I've felt it on like a tiny, tiny scale, but like you're just torn in, you know, inside your body because you're like, I shouldn't be paddling in this direction. <laughs> Get yeah, right. out of here. Yeah, she's still paddling out, and there's 18 seconds left. She, okay, good. But she probably like, doesn't know what Carissa had either because Carissa needed a seven-seven, small wave, but yeah. she she really torched it. So this is really a victory lap for her. Bam. Oh, that was good. That felt good. Awesome. Well, that's a great rear view. You mentioned your son Isaiah uh, did the artwork on Lakey's board there, and he's getting into shaping too. Is that right? He was. Um, he works at the surfboard factory. He helps us doing some tech installs on our spine tech boards. He's been getting into airbrushing. We've had him work in the glass shop, learning that craft, um, and then a bit of shaping. You know, he kind of asked me to teach him how to shape a couple years ago, and I started doing that. And then I asked my dad to step in, which was really cool. So my dad and my son shaped some boards together at my house, at my home shaping room. And Isaiah has talent. He's a, he's a creative, first of all. He's really, really creative, has a really good eye and really good hands. In fact, the first hand shape that he did, when my dad looked at it, my dad said, that's the best first shape I've ever seen anybody do which is huge because like you might just think, oh, that's grandpa being nice. But my grandpa's or my dad's not really that way. Like he doesn't he doesn't hand out compliments about shaping ever. And when he said that, he was serious about it. He said it to me. He didn't say it to Isaiah. He's like, hey, this was really good. So Isaiah fooled around with shaping a little bit. But again, he just turned 19. He's got a girlfriend. And I'm not sure he's in the life space where he wants to be super dedicated to shaping. Shaping's really hard. You have to be dedicated. Yeah. Like you have to put in a lot of time and that's there for him if he wants it. But he recently got really into filmmaking. So he's got his own little production company and he's doing um, 
wedding videos. He's doing videos for uh, businesses, marketing stuff. He does a lot of stuff for nonprofits. He's got an incredible eye as a um, videographer and photographer, but especially editing. He's really good at editing. So that's kind of his passion right now. Still works at the surfboard factory, but he's trying to get this um, filmmaking uh, business off the ground. And I'm, I'm proud of him. He's he's an incredible creative. It's still pretty cool, though. Like I can't even really think of any any sort of three generational board building families out there. I mean, there might be a couple, but yeah, yeah, it's it's really cool. It's really cool. It's a neat thing for us as a family. Um, my dad and my son and I spent a lot of time hunting together and fishing together and stuff like that. But to have that surfboard connection and everyone involved in the business is definitely neat. You know, prior to the rear view, we talked a little bit about your thoughts on the CI surf team being in a rebuilding phase. And I guess it probably applies to a larger extent to the, the CI organization. What, in your opinion, um, are the kind of things or the kind of triggers that, that have to happen for you for in your opinion, for CI to move to the next phase of, of I suppose, contending for world titles again? Uh, you know, a lot of stuff is is sort of serendipitous. You know, um, for example, I mean, if you go way back in history, like it was, it was serendipitous that Tom Curran and Al Merrick lived in the same community and surfed the same spot and knew each other. You know, it was serendipitous that um, my dad had an employee who was from Florida that knew Kelly, who introduced Kelly to my dad. You know, um, it was serendipitous that Sean Thompson showed up in Santa Barbara in 1977 because he, after he won the world title, because he wanted to surf Rincon. And he heard from people that, man, the best shaper around Rincon right now is Al American. So we got a board from him. Um, so that kind of stuff. So I think we have a really good stable of young surfers right now, which has been kind of serendipitous, you know. Um, the Coffin Brothers being from Santa Barbara growing up here, that's one of those things, Lakey, who we just talked about. So I kind of rely on some sort of fate and, and blessings and serendipitous stuff happening. At the other side of it, we are also aggressively saying like, okay, who are surfers that we want to work with and how do we build relationships, bridges, and then relationships to them? So we're giving that thought. On the topic of uh, title contenders, the WSL recently announced some pretty significant directional changes to the tour starting in 2021, um, primarily evolving the way the WSL crowns its world champions from a tour long rankings to the tour long rankings qualifying the world's best for a single day event um, where the world title will be secured by performance in the water. As someone who's been around the sport and culture of surfing your whole life, what are your unvarnished thoughts on on this kind of a change? You know, I I want to I want to see it. I want to feel it more than anything. I think that what I might be wrong. You could correct me on this. I think what the WSL is trying to capture with that is that thing that happens when it comes down to pipe that everybody loves. You know what I mean? It's a little anticlimactic when it happens in Brazil or or France or someone secures it early. But again. Not, not now I'm using this word again. I, that's like a serendipitous thing, right? When like all of a sudden it came down to pipe and it comes down to these heat and these three surfers like it did this last year with Italo. So I think that they're endeavoring to recapture that thing, which um, is magical when it comes down to pipe like that. So I think it's a, I think it's a meritorious sort of pursuit I need to see how it feels when it plays out. Does it capture that drama? 
Does it capture like that whole year coming to this moment and that intensity? Or does it feel like sort of a knockoff of that? I, I, I want to feel it when it happens. Totally fair. I, I, I enjoy the uh, I enjoy that perspective. I'm the same. I, I, I think we're going to have to kind of see it to see what it really feels like. One of the things that unlocked it for me recently, because this has been a conversation going around for a while, is one of the surfers who um, is not a world champ, um, hasn't really even been in contention for a few years, been on tour for a while. And they said, you know, I like it because it means that, you know, to win, you got to beat the world's best um, on the day as opposed to uh, as opposed to beating sort of a lower seed or a wild card or winning it in the locker room. And I said, oh, that's, a, that's a good one. You know, I don't mind hearing that is one of the advantages. But I'm with you. Sure. I guess we'll kind of see how it bears out. We uh, we put it out to our Instagram community to see if anyone had any questions for you. And <laughs> we had a lot. Um, so we've got three from our Instagram followers for you. Uh, Valley Girl 24 asks, what are the deciding factors for a professional model to be mass produced? So one of the models for your team riders to end up being mass produced. Yeah, great question, Valley Girl. Um, it has to uh, translate to the broad market. You know, for example, we talked about the Rook 15 being a really popular team board, but it's not popular in the surf shops um, because it's such a demanding board. It's demanding because of its rocker. You know, it's got pretty extreme rocker. It's got extreme concaves and it's that Ferrari type board. And you really need to know how to drive it. And if you're not driving it correctly, it crashes pretty quickly. So some boards are like that where they're just not going to translate to enough surfers. Other boards, it clicks with a broader range. And again, part of the adventure is like, how do we slightly detune it, so to speak, so that it could be driven by more drivers, ridden by more riders. So a board like the Happy is translatable to a lot of surfers. Um, I had to change that as well in the outline and kind of detune some of the concaves, but it just comes down to like, is this going to work for a lot of surfers and, and get them stoked? That's a good segue to the next one. So the real G reg reg um, asks, what is the best board for the average surfer? This might be my anonymous Twitter account. It's just me asking for me. <laughs> well, gosh, I mean the best board for the average surfer. Yep. Well, where are you surfing? That's a good question. How about for yeah. how about how about since this is probably me? How about for uh, Ventura County? For Ventura County. Um. So, what, are, do you want to surf a twin fin or do you want to surf a thruster? I want to rip. <laughs> you know, that's such a hard question to answer because it comes down to the particular surfer and where they're surfing and what kind of waves they want to surf, which is why we and other manufacturers try to have a broad line of surfboards, right? I think it's really cool that we're in this culture of people being more open-minded about surfboards than they've been in a long time and willing to try stuff. And there's a real challenge from that in that from the design perspective um, because we want to reach all those people and elevate all of their experience. So it really comes down to what kind of waves are you riding, what kind of surfer are you, and what do you want to feel? And in our line, we're going to have a board for uh, all those instances. So it's hard to pick the best one uh, unless you really know the surfer. So for you, I think you need a happy, and I think you need a fish beard, 
And I think you need a mid-length. And I think you need this new twin pin that I'm working on with Mikey Febs. And then I'm also working on this new twin fin with Tom Curran. I think you need one of all those, Dave. I, I couldn't agree more. Last one from the Instagram community. Gaston Hayworth asks, how often and for whom, I love that, do you make bizarre, not normal boards for? I guess it would be in relation to your team. Yeah. Um... <clears throat> You know, Dane is into trying weird stuff every now and again. Uh, we just did a really weird thing. I don't even want to talk about it recently. And now he wants to do another iteration of it. So he likes doing weird stuff, which is really cool. Mikey February is into some alternative stuff. Uh, it depends on how weird you want to get. Like, what exactly do you mean by weird? But we made this one with like a square nose and a square tail. Um, the nose and the tail were like, the same, I actually used a tail template to make the nose on this board for Dane. And then it had a really deep concave off of both ends. It was almost like a double ender type thing. So that was pretty interesting. Uh, he's probably the most open to experimenting and wanting to feel different stuff like that. Awesome, great question. Before we go, uh, we've got the lightning round presented by Michelob Ultra Pure Gold, which are 10 questions for you. Uh, answer them as quickly as you can. If you could only ride one board setup for the rest of your life, single fin, twin fin, thruster, quad bonzer, or finless, what would it be? That's so unfair. My entire life up until this year, I would have not hesitated and said thruster. Today, I have to say twin. <laughs> Coffee or tea? Coffee. Burrito or pizza? Burrito. Pizza's evil. Last book you read? Uh, the Bible this morning. Not the whole thing, just a little bit of it. Best surf film ever? Busting down the door. One wave you never have to go back to. Ventura Harbor. <laughs> How dare you. <laughs> if you only get to surf one wave for the rest of your life. Rincon. Best person to share a lineup with. My son. Worst person to share a lineup with. My son. Finish this sentence. I will next achieve a state of happiness by. Being a good father, husband, friend, and shaper. Britt Merrick, thank you for coming on the lineup. Thank you, man. It's been fun. Appreciate it. So that's it. That's the lineup's conversation with Britt Merrick. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back next week with new episodes, and we appreciate your patience in the interim. I hope you safely get some waves wherever you are, and we'll see you next Tuesday. This episode is produced by Ryan Fawcett with art direction by Jason Penning, copywriting by Dan Willen, and additional support by Henry Baer. Thanks to them and thanks to our sponsors. We appreciate their support. The lineup acknowledges that it is recorded and produced on the ancestral lands of the Chumash and the Kichitabagra.